0: Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast to the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. So welcome all, it's an honor to have you with us today. I'm very pleased to, to introduce this lecture, especially honoured today to introduce our distinguished speaker in our distinguished lecture series. When a, a hall this big is this full, it normally means you know why you're here and who you're here to listen to. Nevertheless, an introduction is the right thing. Sarin is a Palestinian philosopher, a university professor of philosophy, and former president of the Quds University in Jerusalem. Until December 2002, he was the representative of the Palestinian National Authority in Quds. He was twice selected among his many accolades, both in 2005 and 2008 by Open Poll, by Foreign Policy and Prospect magazine as one of the hundred leading world public figures and intellectuals. I think he ranked 24th when that last poll was made. Dr. Nusseba has written and lectured widely his ever-increasing focus being the subject of war and peace in his region of the world. But on the subject of philosophy, I'd just like to mention that he studied his philosophy originally, I think, or did his BA at Christchurch, Oxford, where he was particularly taken by the linguistic philosophy of Ludwig Wittgenstein, and then he spent a year at the Warburg Institute, where he remarked the theology of Ghazali and Ashrite theology, mainstream Sunni theology, and so was drawn more to Islamic philosophy, I think, as a result of that. Subsequently, he therefore did a PhD at Harvard on Islamic Falsafa or phil- Islamic philosophy, which he finished in 1978. And he's since taught at many universities, in- including the Hebrew University, of Qudsman University, Buzet University, and others. So, as I said, he has written widely, and focusing now more on the subject of war and peace in the in his region of the world. Among his many written works are his book *Once Upon a Country*, which he co-authored with Anthony David. This received an excellent reception, has been and has been translated into many languages. While his earlier book on a, on a two-state solution which was written with Mark Heller in 19, and published in 1991, has been translated into German, Italian, Japanese, Hebrew, and French. His monograph, entitled What is a Palestinian State Worth, was published by Harvard University Press in 2011. And his latest book, which gives us the title of today's lecture, The Story of Reason in Islam, narrates a quest for knowledge inspired by the Quran and its language, a quest that employed reason, in the service of faith. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Sari Nuseba.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Good evening. And thank you all for coming this evening. Well, I want to thank you for inviting me. I want to thank the university for inviting me to give this talk. About this book. And I haven't yet decided what to say about this book to you this evening. But having heard the introduction now about myself, I want to say a word or two and begin my talk with that. I did go and study philosophy at Oxford many, many years ago when the vogue at the time was the philosophy of language. And as I neared the uh, year of my graduation, I wanted to continue studying philosophy. But also, having spent, uh, having spent so many years abroad, away from home, I wanted to sort of study something also in Arabic. So I looked around, and a friend of mine, who was at the time at Oxford, but attending a weekly seminar at the Warburg Institute in London, supervised by a professor who is now uh, Egyptian, who is now dead, he's been dead now for two or three years, called Abdelhamid Sabra, who was a philosopher of science and studied under Karl Popper, in fact. And was interested in in reading medieval books. He was looking over a particular text by a particular scientist or scholar, Islamic scholar by the name of Abdel Jabbar, the Qadi Abdul Jabbar. The Qadi Abdul Jabbar is a Mautazilite scholar from the 12th century. And his work had just been uncovered by an Egyptian team working in the Sana'a mosque that unearthed some uh, manuscripts. Belonging to him. In fact, that unearthed the major work that he'd done called Al Mughni. And uh, Sabra was reading this text with a few students uh, once a week. He was going over, I think it was a chapter on perception or on knowledge or something like that. And I immediately fell in love with the way that the Qadi Abdel Jabbar was handling these topics, topics like perception vision, knowledge, and so on. And so I immediately latched on to uh, Professor Sabra and told him, I want to study with you. And he took me in for a year, but then he got a chair. He got an offer for a professorship at Harvard in the history of science department. So he went over there, and I followed him a few years later. It didn't happen immediately. I came to Abu Dhabi for a year or two, trying to make money here, but I couldn't. Uh, (laughs) And so I decided, okay, I'll continue with my studies, and I went to Harvard, and I finished my PhD there. Now, while I was there as a student, I met somebody, in fact, a couple of people who had become long-time lifelong friends, someone by the name of Guy Strumze and Sarah Strumzer. And they were studying there, one of them was studying there, Guy was studying in the Center for Religious Studies, I think. He was doing some work on the Byzantine era, Anyway, I stayed friends with them. They had come from the Hebrew University. And when we all went back, I went back to Jerusalem, East Jerusalem. They went back to West Jerusalem. They went and worked in the, uh, they were at the Hebrew University. And they invited me to go and lecture there. So I spent a year immediately after Harvard lecturing in Islamic philosophy at the Hebrew University. And at the time, really one of the foremost scholars. In uh, philosophy, in philosophy and in that tradition, somebody by the name of Shlomo Pines was still alive. He was already retired, but he was still alive. And I remember also spending time with him and with other students, again, looking at various texts. At the time, we were looking at Plato's laws and other texts that he was interested in, I was interested in. But it was only a year that I spent at the Hebrew University. Then I left. It was very hard for me to continue working there while at the same time I was working at Birzeit University at the time. And sooner or later, I stopped working at the Hebrew University. I went on working at Birzeit for many years. And at one stage, as you heard, I became involved in politics. Actually, I became involved in politics very quickly, having uh, worked at Birzeit. But uh, then left it maybe about 10 years ago. But to go back... What really gripped me about the stuff that we were reading with Professor Sabra was the way that this Qadi Abdul-Jabbar seemed to be analyzing thought meticulously by looking at the language uh, that they were using, that he was using. So concepts for him were matters that could be worked out through an intricate analysis of language. And having myself been brought up In this Oxford tradition of looking at language, I was very attracted to this and therefore went on to study this. And I didn't study Abdul-Jabbar in particular. In fact, when I went to Harvard, I focused on philosophy, on the tradition of Falsifa and did my thesis on Avicenna. And I looked at his logic and metaphysics, then went back to Jerusalem, as I was saying earlier. But... In the past few years, many years in fact, as I've been thinking about the stuff that I've been uh, reading all this time, I decided finally perhaps there was something to do with the use or the way that we look upon language or treat language that is also connected very closely with reason or reasoning. So I decided in the last couple of years to try and think about what that connection was And I decided, therefore, to look at this again and to see whether we can glean anything out concerning the relationship between thought and language from just looking at the kind of language that people used in the Arab world, in the Muslim world, in Arabic, from the inception of Islam. That's to say, from the time of the Quran. And I decided maybe, and I may be wrong, of course, and uh, other people are probably just as, you know, authorized to, to, to have their opinions. I came up with the following thought, namely that one of the main distinguishing features in intellectual history or the history of ideas in the Islamic world is, in fact, the diversion between two traditions. Normally people call them the traditional and the rational sciences or some such appellation, but the the basic distinguishing mark I decided had to do with the extent to which one side of these scientists, of this divide, was focusing on language and language analysis and reasoning through language and how much the other side focused on not language, but ideas, abstract ideas. Now, I want to take you back a little bit with me to my Oxford days, just to say that at the time, what I was taught by people when I was at Oxford was that the philosophy of language tradition that grew up in Britain at the time in many ways was a reaction to the way in particular in in the continent, in Europe, Germany to some extent, France to some extent, people were looking at philosophical ideas in such a way as to make them seem so abstractedly, in such a way as to make them seem almost too obscure to deal with, too unconnected with down-to-earth matters. And the philosophy of language approach was basically to try and tie these concepts back to earth, so to speak, through the use or through the analysis of language. And looking at the Islamic tradition the, in, in Arabic, I decided that maybe this was, there's the same tug of war here between those on the one hand who focused on language and those on the other hand who focused basically on ideas. Now, if you come along with me, if you accept this, then you can very quickly see how, in fact, I decided to compose the book that I wrote, The Story of Reason. Because what I focus in it first is on language and its appeal to the Arabs, and then on language as it is expressed in the Quran, and then on language as it basically captivates the Arab mind or the Muslim mind in Arabic. And what you'll also find is that a lot of the so-called colors of the traditional sciences, in fact, stayed closely connected to the analysis of, of language, in a way. Whereas the philosophers, as I'll also try to say, very quickly turned to dealing with, with meanings. Maybe I should, I should quickly uh, mention here a debate that's become very, uh, very famous, a famous debate between a grammarian and a logician the grammarian named by the name of Serafi and the logician by the name of Matthew or Matta, in the majlis of one of the zeers in Iraq, where the linguist Serafi basically tries to argue against the logician Matthew or Matta over the necessity or relevance of studying logic. And Matthew, Matta is sort of defending logic as a science that's just been imported, that's been brought in from Greece, People had been,, as you know, translating all the stuff from Greece, been you know translating everything that was there to translate, including Aristotle and Plato and Plotinus and the later commentators of Plato, people like the, Theophrastus and so on. And people in the Arab world, in the Muslim world were gripped by the analysis, the study, the reformulation, articulation of the ideas that reached them from the Greeks. but The way they did this was to try and construct a totally different language, a new language. It was in Arabic, but it was a language that more tried to reflect the ideas that were connected more with the Greek language from where, in fact, they originated. So as they were being translated, these ideas into Arabic, the indigenous Arab linguists and others were looking at this language that was being presented to them in Arabic And thinking that this is a totally foreign language, it's totally useless, it distorts the mind. What's the point about it? Now, the uh, logicians, of course, were claiming that language is, is, you know, regardless of what language you're talking in, ideas are the same. They stay constant across languages. That, in fact, logic, for instance, is a universal language. It's like mathematics, as is chemistry or physics, And so it doesn't matter that logic was built upon the language the way that Aristotle had done to develop a system of syllogisms and so on, logic that can be used in order to achieve knowledge. But the linguist was actually very insistent on the fact that this was a path that led somewhere totally different, that if one wanted to study anything about anything, then all one needed to do was look at the language itself, Arabic. Now, I want to just say that at the time, Serafi, this linguist, by insisting that one should look at language in order to analyze concepts, for instance, that were around, he was not necessarily only thinking about looking at the Qur'an itself or the language of the Qur'an or the Qur'an said. He was basically just arguing that if you want to study anything at all, like, you know, ideas like what knowledge is, what properties are, what justice is, these are important issues to discuss for people at the time. If you wanted to discuss this, you really had to uh, look at language and deal with the language that is being used. And the language that was being used at the time was, of course, the Arabic that was commonly used by people at the time. So this was a major diversion, I would say, between two attitudes to attempting to try and find out how to analyze concepts. But to go back to the beginning, why did the interest in these concepts arise in the first place? Why did people in the Muslim world first begin to think about stuff like, uh, you know, what is a property? Or what is justice? Or what is freedom of the will? Why did people start thinking like this? And I decided that uh, looking at the history, very quickly, that the thing that actually gave rise to all these discussions right from the very, very beginning was the political situation that came to exist in the Muslim world immediately in particular after the death of the Prophet. So, as you know, there's a major historical condition in which I don't I, I didn't go into the, into the condition, the political condition in the book. I wasn't so much interested in that, but I was interested in the fact That very quickly after the death of the Prophet, people started looking at the Quran and trying to analyze, to to elicit answers to questions that bothered them politically. And the thing that really bothered people politically was this ongoing opposition between the Umayyads and the people in Kufa and in Basra, who were in fact pro-Ali and were against the caliph, who who were against the caliphs in the beginning, right from the beginning. And the discussion, of course, as you know, you probably know that there's a lot of pressure, authoritarian pressure applied against people who wouldn't go along in the fold. And people who tried to resist were people that were, in fact, not necessarily treated very well uh, in different ways. But there were people that were beginning to think about whether, in fact, what they were being asked to do was just. Can, in fact, people be imposed upon? Do people not have their own free will to decide on what to do, which caliph to support, for instance? Aren't people, after all, created with the ability to choose, to distinguish between right and wrong? Doesn't it not make sense to just assume that if the caliph or the caliph's regent says this is good, just to assume it is therefore good, just because he it says it's good? Isn't it common sense for people to stand up when they see an injustice? and say, this is an injustice and I want to stand up against it. Now, people started to discuss these questions right from the beginning. And there's a particular person with whom everything, all these discussions are focused or connected uh, by the name of Hassan al-Basri. There, a whole new movement, intellectual movement began where people would, you know, sit around in mosques, like in, an, in a corner, and, and would discuss those things. Now, some of the people who sat and discussed those things were people who were scholars of the Quran, but a lot of them were people who were liberal-minded, people who were open-minded, people who just had free ideas, who, who were not happy with, with submitting to whatever authority, whichever it was, among them, for instance, uh, various Arab poets at the time or poets like Bashar or Ibn Burd, if you have heard or come across his name. So these people uh, started sitting around discussing or trying to look into the language of the Qur'an primarily to see, in fact, if we did have, if, if human beings did have uh, free will, if God indeed was just or was in fact uh, just or had the property of justice. And and from there, a whole culture of eventually people have come to call it the science of 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 kalam. By the way, kalam, uh, very often translated speculative theology or theology, its literal translation is speech, kalam. And I think, you know, it, it Maybe this alerts us to the initial distinction I made, to the initial highlight uh, that I tried to draw upon, the, the issue of, of focusing on speech, on common speech, uh, the speech of the day, if you like, the speech that was there in the Quran, Anyway, so people like that were uh, meeting. They were beginning to discuss things like whether uh, we had free will, whether God had justice. If he had justice, would that mean that he had a property? If he had a property, would he have, therefore, would would there be more than one thing that was eternal? What is the connection between the Quran and and God? And all these issues, all these debates would actually take place in the context of a lot of uh, clerics who were around from the church who participated, who somehow became involved in one way or another with the kind of issues that were being debated. And I think, I'm not so sure, but I think one of the main debates between the Nestorian Christians and the Monophysites, pre-Islamic, in fact somehow filtered down into the debates that were taking place around uh, by these people around whether in fact God, uh, whether the Quran was created or not, whether, in fact, the Quran had, a, a, had a sanctified, had sanctity or not, uh, and so on. So there's a, a connection, I think, that one can see there. A connection I don't want to go into now, but anyway. So this kind of science, the science of interpretation of language, the science of trying to define ideas, to articulate them through the analysis of language, primarily the language of the Qur'an, but also within the framework of the language that was spoken by the community at the time, basically, I think, defined the origins of this uh, movement that we call in retrospect now, or that is called the scholarship of kalam, or of speculative theology, or dialectical theology, or eventually, uh, as I was saying, the science of speech. Now, uh, sometime a few hundred years later, people were beginning to uh, receive translations from, from the Greeks, as I was saying, and the discipline of philosophy began to develop, unfold. Now, uh, the people who were doing philosophy were looking at the Greek sciences. They were interested in everything. They were not just interested in language. They were interested in uh, logic. They were interested in chemistry. They were translating Things like Ptolemy, Almagest, of course, uh, for uh, scientists at the time, this was very important to try. And, and as you probably know, the, the, ever, the first ever observatory was, that was built was built at the time in, 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 in uh, Baghdad under Muawiyah. Various things were being translated. There's a book called The Book of Machineries by the Banu Musa brothers. Uh, the Book of Machineries was a book of uh, various mechanical engineering uh, ideas, you know, how to do things, amazing things, including, for instance, how to set up a lamp, a lamp, of course, a lamp meaning uh, a fire, in the street that would not blow off from the wind. Now, I I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but uh, someone many, many, many years later did this in the United States of America, namely, I believe, someone who later became one of the early presidents of the United States. One of the things he looked at was also how to uh, establish street lamps that would stay lit, regardless of the, of the wind. Now, you know, these are the things that were being translated at the time. Let me say one or two things about this, this particular t- uh, tradition, which, as I was trying to explain earlier, was separate or different from the first one in being concerned more with everything to do with the sciences technicians, technical issues, uh, medicine, and so on. There were, I think, three major sources of influence, of ideas that one probably should look into as one thinks of this particular intellectual uh, movement, the movement of Falsafa. One is the works of Aristotle. Aristotle, as he was translated into Arabic, was looked upon as a construct that perhaps you can regard as as being made of of various floors. So the ground floor of the Aristotelian corpus was to do with language, but it was to do with the Greek language and how you can elicit from the Greek language those tools in order to move on to the upper floor, which was logic. Then further, further up to the sciences and finally to metaphysics, what this whole thing is about. And you can imagine that for a Muslim scholar looking at at this corpus, that they were viewing something being presented to them that looked a little, not a little, (laughs) looked a lot different from what they were presented through their faith, through the Quran in particular. It was totally different. However, side by side with Aristotle, there was somebody equally important. I don't mean Plato, of course, although Plato was there but I mean in particular the Neoplatonists and in particular the works of uh, Plotinus. Now, the works of Plotinus basically somehow Platonized the Aristotelian structure, Platonized the Aristotelian structure in infusing that structure with a kind of spiritual life that does not exist in Aristotle. If you look at the Aristotelian structure, it looks extremely rigid, extremely cold. Not, I wouldn't say dead, but extremely mechanical. But, you know, if you sort of infuse it with the Plotinian life, it, it sort of acquires a different shape. And so there was this, there was the Aristotelian, affected by the Plotinian ideas, on the one hand, and this sort of presented the Muslim scholar at the time with a, a picture of the world that was different from on the surface at least, from the picture that was presented to, them, to him by the Qur'an. But then thirdly, there was an equally important aspect, which was that of mathematics, of, of how the world is set up mathematically. I'm referring here in particular to the work of Ptolemy. So you have to, you know, if you try to uh, put yourself back to the sort of ninth century, say, in Baghdad, and, uh, and imagine yourself uh, somebody who's interested in knowledge and, uh, are, you know, you're looking around at all the stuff that's uh, arriving, being translated to you from Greek and Syriac and so on, and, and basically you're confronted by these three things, Aristotle, Plotinus, Ptolemy. You can imagine how you can, in fact, a person in that position would, in fact, then be inspired to try to work in order to basically translate this edifice this combined edifice now not just Plato with Aristotle or not just Aristotle with Plotinus but Aristotle with Plato with Plotinus with Ptolemy how you try to put it all together and translate or try to see how this can be translated into the stuff that was uh, that you've been born to believe in namely the Quran and how the Quran presents the world and as we know, one of the earliest philosophers, in fact, the so-called uh, philosopher of the Arabs, Al Kindi, he's the first person to have been called a philosopher. In fact, did you know? Claim right from from the early from the beginning that those two uh, concepts of the world, the concept that is brought to us by the Prophet on the one hand, and the concept that's brought to us by the scientists on the on the other hand, are two that are compatible with one another. Now, I want to stop and jump forward a little bit and look a little bit at what I've said so far in, uh, retrospectively. As I said at the very beginning, very often a lot of uh, historians and people who look at this history will tell us that if we are trying to think about uh, whether and if and how in Arabic reason was uh, used, that, you know, reasoning or reason was used, that what we would have to look at then would have to be that particular school of thought that arose with al-kindi, with falsafah, with the Greek imported sciences. In other words, that that is where reason has its source in the history of Islam. And if we look, on the other hand, at the other side, the side that I said was based on language, we would find, you know, so the story would go, that there the emphasis is not so much on reason as it is on faith in the language that was there in the Quran so that there was not much faith, sorry, so, so that there was not much reason going on in that context. But in my view, and this is, you know, what I'm trying or I tried to argue in the book, and what I, to some extent, um, alluded to in the, in the talk earlier, in my view, if we look at reason or if we uh, take reason basically to mean the inspiration to analyze, to think, the inspiration to analyze, to think, with no specific determination of how to think, simply to think, to analyze, looking through a problem, trying to see beyond appearances, trying to look at how things are put together. If, if we take reason to mean this, then I would claim that actually looking for the source of reason in Islam, one cannot but identify, in fact, that uh, incredible occasion of the creation of the presence, the revelation of the Quran. In other words, if we want to find out how people in the Arab world Muslims began to think, then I think it is wrong to look at, say, the Aristotelian corpus and look at some philosophers who started analyzing bits and pieces of that corpus. I think it makes more sense to go back and look at the initial discussions, the initial debates that began with people trying to to explain to themselves their own political problems in the context of the aftermath of the death of the Prophet, drawing upon the Qur'an itself, trying to find out in the Qur'an, in the language of the Qur'an, one thing or the other was correct or not correct. This kind of debate, the debate over whether, whether for instance, moral values are natural, Are things good in themselves? Does God say things are good because things are in themselves good? Or are things good because God says they are good? Does God have any properties? Can we say God is just? What does it mean to say that God is just? Do we go pursue some kind of intellectual journey like Plato would have done, for instance, to determine an idea of justice, a metaphysical, abstract idea of justice, and then somehow uh, connect it with God and say, there is justice and there is God, and God and justice are together and have always been. Or can we explain justice differently? And as I was trying to explain earlier, the main issues that have always been the philosopher's concern free will, justice, responsibility, and so on, were issues that, in fact, were discussed by the scholars who first began to discuss uh, the political situation in reference to the language of the Quran and the spoken language of the time. I'll give you just one example. And, you know, since I spoke about justice, uh, very quickly, just to give you a sense of what the difference in approach is, As you know, somebody like Plato would assume that there is an abstract idea, which is justice, which in one way or another the human being can or uh, is able to somehow eventually through some kind of uh, intellectual journey cognize. Now, the problem with assuming an eternal idea like this, if you are a person who is supportive of justice, the problem of someone who's a Muslim accepting an idea like this, is then you're finding out, then you are talking not about a a monistic, a one God, but about a couple of things, God on the one hand and the idea of justice on the other hand. So these scholars had to find another way to explain justice. And what they did was to, in fact, try to explain justice by reverting to language. When do we use the word just? When do we say somebody is just? If we want to find out what justice means, all we need to do is look at how is justice used in our discourse. And very quickly, uh, these people developed the whole concept of justice that is mostly to do with, it's a psychological, a psychological, I, I would say, rather than a, an intellectual explanation. And, and this not only applies to justice, also for knowledge, for instance. Knowledge is not a concept that you arrive at, you just know that you are in a state of knowing something is the case, and so on. So these scholars, in fact, reduced, if you like, brought back, just very much like the I was saying at the beginning, the philosophy of language approach did with pre-existing continental works. What they tried to do was to bring down ideas like this, bring them down to earth, and try to look upon them within the framework, within the context, of earth as it for them at the time seemed was the earth of language the language of the Quran and the use of their common sense in order to analyze what it says about those things. I want to show you something from something I did in a talk some time ago but maybe it will give you an idea or one idea of how things went so normally you think of philosophy as and philosophers as the rationalists right and the uh, other guys the uh, non-rationalists now, I'm going to use these two people who are both anti-philosophers. They both attack the philosophers. But I think they're extremely rational, both of them. And I think it's good to see people to give an idea of how people who are supposed to be anti-rational, how, in fact, they were discussing things amongst themselves very rationally. The only non-rational thing about them, perhaps, was that both of them were not very much in favor of wine or drinking wine. This is an uh, Arabic. It's a, it's a, nobody can read it, probably. But very quickly, uh, I don't know if about you know about a year ago, there was a Tunisian guy who came on to say that wine drinking is not prohibited in Islam. And, you know, he caused a, a, a big commotion. And people said he was being, becoming senile, he was fine when he was younger, but, you know, by, by now he's just uh, beginning to lose. They didn't really want to attack him too much, criticize him, they respected him. But actually, his statement that wine is not prohibited, in fact, his reference to the issue of wine, you will find not, uh, not something that was totally unheeded uh, in the past. So, for instance, and I've picked those two people, of course, Ibn Taymiyyah is very, both of them are, are, are quite ex- famous, of course. Ibn Taymiyyah people know a lot about because people have associated him recently with Wahhabism and and so on. But here I've picked him up from a positive angle uh, to show that he has something nice to say. And the other guy, Al-Ghazali, is again somebody who's very famous. He's supposed to have been somebody that sort of wrote against the philosophers and so on. And the uh, two two books, the uh, Ghazali book, the Ghazali book is called uh, Al-Mustasfa. Al-Ghazali book is a book on on jurisprudence. I didn't really say very much about on, on jurisprudence or fiqh, I didn't say very much about that, but I would count it among those rational sciences, non, non-philosophical, rational sciences, that actually express, in a, in a fascinating way, how far these scholars, the, these scholars that I was talking about, have, in fact, how far they've gone in applying their reason to uh, issues that concern the life that Muslims live. Uh, I will not go too much into that, but anyway. He wrote, Al-Ghazali wrote this book, Al-Mustasfa. You know, of course, he wrote against the philosophers, but I picked this book. And Ibn Taymiyyah, he wrote this other one, Kitab Radha al attacking primarily, in, in theory, the, the philosophers. But actually, Ibn Taymiyyah attacks Al-Ghazali. Now, these two guys are both anti philosopher but the one is attacking the other, and they're attacking each other on, on an issue that... Uh, so, what do they say? Uh, this is just an example to give you, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's just to wake you up, right? The story's beginning is this, that, you know, from the Hadith, apparently, you have uh, these two statements, that al-Muskar is Hamr and al-Muskar is Haram. But the intention is to show that the Hamr is Haram, that the Hamr itself is, is prohibited. That's the intention. And it's not stated like this. The Hadiths basically have two statements. One is Al-Muskar, khamr, and the other is Al-Muskar, haram. By the time, of course, of Al-Ghazali and Ibn Timiyyah, people are discussing khamr not only as something that you distill from date, but also whether it's something that you distill from grapes as well. And if there was anything in the beginning from the time of the Prophet to do do with khamr, does it only have to do with dates, or does it also include in anticipation uh, the wine that people in Syria was drinking—that's distilled from grapes. Now, uh, the second issue, and this is the issue over which there was a disagreement between these those two uh, scholars: Can this logic that we studied, uh, from that we saw from Aristotle, deductive logic, so-called, can we use that in order to uh, come out with the conclusion that the the conclusion that we want—that the hamr is haram, that the hamr is prohibited—can we use our logic? The logic we learned from Aristotle to use uh, from al-Muskar khamr, al-Muskar haram, to deduce that al-Khamr haram. That was the idea. Now, al-Ghazali, you may know, the, uh, attacked philosophy, but said, you know, philosophy is terrible at the level of metaphysics. You remember the superstructure, the upper structure in Aristotle. But philosophy is fine on the ground floor, logic, and on the first floor, sciences. All these are fine. This is what Ghazali said. Where the logicians, where the philosophers go wrong is on the upper floor. They sort of, uh, th- that's too high. You know, they get, they get too high over there. And so we should just, uh, but we should use their logic. And Ghazali, in fact, in Al-Mustaspa, in his book, tries to use their logic. And so what uh, he wants to do is this. This is just straightforward. You know, the Ks are for Hamr and, uh, and H is for Ham, uh, Haram. Now, you know, in theory, if you have something like this, you know, if you say all K's are M's and M's are H's, therefore K's and H's are H's. I mean, you can, you can do such a deduction very easily, right? You know, if all A's are B's and B's are C's and A's are C's. I mean, it's a, it's a straightforward thing. And Ghazali wants to try and do that in order to get the prohibition on Khamr, because the prohibition on Khamr is not there in the first place in the two statements elicited from the hadith. But the problem with al-Ghazali is he has the uh, hadith in the second uh, sense, all M's are K's and all M's are H's, and he therefore cannot, in fact, make the conclusion he wants. He wants to say that, no, we can make this conclusion. But of course, you know, given the hadith, you can't really make that conclusion, right? So what does he do, Ghazali? He does something very playful, he, he, you know, I, I don't know if all philosophers and all logicians are like that, but he does something here playful. He sort of switches things round. So instead of having Ks are Ms, he switches it here to Ks are Ms. Right? Instead of saying all Ks are uh, uh, instead of saying so all Ms are Ks. This is uh, yeah. He does in the, so it's in the red, he switches it round, he says Ks are Ms. So he switches basically the sentence round. So he says all Khamrs are muskars and all muskars are uh, Haram, so all Khamrs are Haram. This is what he does. But in, in doing this, what he does is switch one of the Hadiths round. Yeah, that's easy. I mean, it's obvious, right? Now what he says is this, that muskars are Ham, are, kham, are Haram, is something that you get from from our tradition. But then you need logic and Aristotle to get the conclusion. Together, the hadith on the one hand and the syllogism on the other hand allow us to come to the conclusion we want to come to, which is to prohibit wine drinking. This is what he wants to say. And he he does this trick. He does this trick by switching the sentence. And, And he does it because he wants to, you know, Assert the fact that logic is something that you, you, you want. That you need, to, you need the tradition on the one hand, and you need logic on the other hand. So the problems he, uh, he goes through is that he reverses the sentence. And the other one, that uh, all Khamrs are muskars, is not something from the tradition. It's an empirical statement. It's not from the tradition. And, you know, the problem with empirical statements is how do you verify them? Empirical, universal statements, how do you verify them? And that's a problem. How do you verify uh, an empirical, universal statement? One way, of course, to verify uh, the universal, empirical statement that all wines are muskars, you know, cause inebriation, is to, you know, just drink all the wine there is, right? I mean, you know, how do you verify it otherwise? But anyway, now Ibn Taymiyyah, uh, who is... Who's against logic and against Aristotle and against Ghazali because Ghazali introduced logic into the into the tradition? You know, stood up and said, "Look, you know, the prophet was not in need anyway of of Aristotle. You know, if he says that uh, the thing is prohibited, that's it." But then he went on to say, and that's where I find what he says interesting, that empirical generalizations anyway. You can never get to certainty with them. This is Ibn Taymiyyah. And also, more fundamentally, there's no such thing as abstract ideas like man and animal and rational, which are the abstract ideas that are used by Aristotle and by logic to work out the syllogism in in question. So here, Ibn Taymiyyah, what I'm trying to tell you here is that here, Ibn Taymiyyah, what he does is he actually is pushed into taking a position against Razali's logical position, which is not in itself Ibn Taymiyyah's position, which is not in itself untenable logically. In other words, he is pushed into taking a logical position that's also tenable, that's also defensible, and actually a good logical position, and it it is one that confirms what he. And most of the scholars in that tradition believed, namely, that there's no such thing as a universal idea. So he puts this together and says to Ghazali, you can't do that. Now, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, instead of using uh, the normal deductive kind of syllogism, he and, of course, all the jurisprudence and and people in the Kalam tradition used uh, or focused on inference rather than on on deduction. And this is what they normally did. They would say, for instance, we cannot verify an empirical statement, any empirical statement, but what we normally do is look at something and if we make a judgment about that thing, then we think about what is the reason that made us make that judgment in the first place. Then once we come across a second thing, and we see, we recognize that the same condition in the second event applies, then we can then make the same judgment over the second uh, item. right? So if we say, for instance, if we find, for instance, that a tree or wood burns, a uh, particular wood burns, and we make that judgment that it burns, and then we think of the reason why it burns. We don't go around verifying each piece of wood to see if it burns, we find out why a particular piece of wood burns. If we find out the reason why a particular uh, bit of wood burns, and then we look at another bit of something and find that the same condition that was there in the piece of wood also is in that new piece of or item that we saw, then we can also make the judgment that it burns. So this is syllogism by analogy. And this is very important for these people because, as you know, in in jurisprudence in particular, if you're trying to elicit judgments from the Quran, what you're looking at primarily are examples in the Quran. There's simple, single statements about single events. I mean, there are also general statements. But if you are a jurisprudent and you want to make a judgment on a singular thing that comes up for you to deal with, you go and look at a single statement in the Qur'an and you try to see if the reasoning behind that particular statement would apply to this particular condition or situation that you're faced with today. And that's how you apply it. And that's why the jurisprudence, in fact, relied on analogical reasoning. So this is, this is, this is just explaining what I've just been talking about and explaining more importantly how Ibn Taymiyyah looked anyway uh, looked at, at deduction and at the deductive, Be- because the deductive methodology always uses universal statements. And since Ibn Taymiyyah says, you can never actually verify a universal statement except if you use analogy. So basically what he did was to say that any Aristotelian syllogism is dependent ultimately on my system of thought, on my system of reasoning, which is the uh, analogical uh, reasoning. And he was, of course, against uh, uh, universals, as, as I was saying earlier. I'm, I'm not sure if Ibn Taymiyyah's position is totally tenable, is what I'm saying here. But what I'm saying is the following that even if you looked outside the so called rational sciences, what in, you know, generally we look upon as the rational sciences, even if we look outside of this, at in fact arguments within the context of people who are against those sciences, you will find that in fact, that there was a lot of effort, analytical effort being used. I would say a lot of use of reason that in fact contributed to the overall picture we have of the history of ideas in the Islamic world. Finally, maybe I'll just say this. The book I wrote, The History, The Story of Ideas, I didn't uh, call it a history because it's not a history, because I'm looking at a period of about 1,000 years. I'm looking from the time of the birth of Islam the revelation, the Quran, and I go all the way to one of the last major figures in in Islamic thought in that that context, Sadr al-Din Shirazi, or Mullah Sadra, in the 17th century. So it's about a thousand years that I'm looking at. And, you know, since I'm not giving a history, what I'm trying to do in the book is basically trying to tell you a story, telling to tell the reader a story. And the story is... What is the story? The story is how someone like me who's been reading about this, you know, who has delved into this, into that, has, you know, then is trying to take a bird's eye view of the entire history of this, the entire sort of uh, curvature, if you like, and trying to come out with an answer, and this is really at the back of my mind, trying to come uh, out with an answer, which is to the question, which is, Well, how come? Why did it all more or less stop? Now, I say, why did it? So the question is, what am I referring to by saying it? And I'm referring to a particular intellectual frame, if you like, in which reason really shone, reason was used to incredible heights in the context of the Arabic language, in the context of the Arabic language, by the way, I mean, thinking in Islam did not stop. And it went on in other languages. You know, if you think of somebody like Muhammad Iqbal, for instance, who wrote in Urdu, no longer in Arabic. If you think of other people, but in general, the thinking that went into that constitutes this history, that constitutes this tradition, uh, and it is a tradition, because, you know, uh, I mentioned Sadruddin Shirazi a, a while ago. If you look at Sadruddin, for instance, you will find by reading him that you're basically reading everything to do with this framework, starting with the Qur'an. So it's all really a conversation, a discourse. Never mind the fact that people are fighting against each other very often. But it's all a discourse within the same framework. They're basically talking the same language. You read uh, Sadr din Shirazi, uh, you read Suhrawardi, You read Ibn Sina, you read Shahristan, you read Tosi, you read all these people. And yes, they are fighting against each other. They do not see eye to eye with one another. Uh, They're not all Aristotelian. Some of them are anti-Aristotelian. You know, some of the main advances made, especially in astronomy, in the major conservatories, in the major, I mean, um, what are they called? Where you watch the stars and uh, what are they called? Observatories, yes, thank you. So, you know, some of the major advances were made by people who were anti-Aristotelian, people like Nasir al-Din tusi Whether this was before when he was in Alamut, then when he went on to uh, Maraga and, and, and looked after the establishment of that particular place or later in Samarkand, a lot of them were anti-Aristotelian, a lot of them were pro-Aristotelian, a lot of them were people of the faith, a lot of them were Christian, by the way, a lot of them were Jewish, some of them were converts, people had different ideas and, uh, you know, and remember also, even the, even the people that uh, stand out as our main, in Islam, our main schools of thought in, in fiqh, like, uh, you know, uh, Ibn Hanbal and Abu Hanifa and so on. I mean, you today think of them, and you think, you know, these are authority figures, right? Because today for us, they are authority figures. But if you think about it, these, are, these were basically people who were rebels. These were people who stood up against the, authorities. These were people who would not, you know, they were uh, fighters for the freedom of conscience, I would say. People, you know, like Ibn Hanbal, who refused to abide by the authorities who wanted him to accept the notion that the Quran was, was created, and uh, he didn't want to accept that. Or people like Hanifa, who refused to serve as a functionary, as a religious functionary, with the caliph. Why? Because he believed that, you know, a religious scholar has to remain independent and his allegiance must only be to his own uh, religious conscience and to God, but not to a, a political ruler. I mean, so these are not people, I mean, today we look upon them, I mean, I, I looked upon them as I grew up when I was younger, as people who represent, but, but it's not like this. It's not black and white. So I hope you all uh, buy a copy of this book. Uh, and I sort of made sure to write it in a way that uh, can actually appeal to different kinds of people who are reading. And I, I repeat, it's not a survey, it's a take. It's a personal take, my personal take on, on, on various aspects of this intellect. This fantastic and fascinating intellectual history, whether this is in the area of fiqh, of, of jurisprudence, or of astronomy, or or of philosophy, or of logic, in all of this. And I I connect all of it to the birth of reason. I connect the birth of reason with the Quran and language. And I ask the question, and I have an answer, but I'm not sure about it. I ask the question, why did it all stop? And I think it's partly to do with with language again. The fact that Arabic language has become fractured in the past two, three hundred years. And I think, you know, we need to bring the language back together again and to give free, free right to the imagination once again and the ability to think freely. And that was what the Qur'an did. It sort of basically made us able, made Arabs at the time, able to just go beyond the visible. It opened up people's minds, made them ask questions, made them, made them think again about what they believed was, was visible uh, before them. You know, very simple things like, you know, like a particular, for instance, ayah which says, you know, you look upon the, cl- uh, the mountains, you think uh, these are fixed, but verily they move like the clouds. I mean, I, I mean, imagine someone sitting there in Mecca or Medina or somewhere, I don't know where, and reading an ayah like this. You're looking at things like this, like mountains. And no, 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 don't think they're just fixed there. These things are moving like clouds. Uh, Imagine this and similar things, whether to do with ideas, to do with ways of behaving, what it must have done for people's minds to sort of somehow liberate them. I compare it to uh, picking them up, putting them in a spaceship suddenly, back in the 7th century, and taking them up to space, all these Arabs in Mecca and Medina and all the surroundings, and telling them, right, you know, now look down, at everything that you know. And, you know, just imagine what would have happened to them. And this is what the Quran did. And this is how I think reason was born in Islam. Thank you. I can also talk about the two-state solution. (laughs) Hi, good evening. Thank you very much for your talk. I'm an uh, alumnus of Fenway Abu Dhabi, uh,
0: and you, you gave a rather poetic description of the story, how the reason was born in um, Islam, and I was wondering what's your opinion about the Arabic uh, poetry, which was present even
1: in the pre-Islamic times and remained uh, uh, quite... A large, I mean, quite, quite important part of the language and the scholarship overall, written language afterwards. So, were there similar like, influences in terms of poetic developments or, or the developments in poetry? Yeah, I, I think a, a fantastic uh, question because, you know, I, I'm no lover of poetry. I don't know why. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm a lover of poetry, but I'm not a, I've never actually been able to master poetry. So I've always taken a, a kind of aloof look to poetry until I started writing this book. And uh, there, it more and more came to me that in fact, and you see, because of this business about language, there it came more dawned on me that actually poetry, poetry was, was key. That the, 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 in a sense, uh, poetry in the pre-Islamic period, if you like, which was the uh, which was this fantastic form of expression uh, appealing to the to the to the uh, to the senses to, to the aesthetic senses of the of the listener, was something in fact that in a sense prepared the background for suddenly uh, being for being captivated by what I call in the book the poem of the universe that came with the Quran, because it really I mean if you think about it. I mean, yes, the Arabs were, in particular, were uh, overwhelmed, overtaken by poetry. Poetry was a means of transcending reality, of seeing beyond the visible, if you like, trying to uh, probe into things that one can't probe with one's uh, fingers, but one can probe with one's heart. They were sort of, it's it's a transcendental tool, a tool to transcend. And Arabs then and even today are still very much, fired by this by this tool and i think just imagine that given the fact that there were that there was this readiness to be to be uh swayed to be to be uh taken over by by this that you so so when the quran came you know verse after verse after verse i think it's sort of it was the precondition for but uh, very quickly i want to say this the poets and the people, uh, the poets who were the the sort of the guides of of, uh, of, of freedom, of, of thinking, of freedom of imagination, which formed, which are the source for what I construct as the journey of reason afterwards. What very often happens, and it happened in the context of Islam, is that once reason, you know, which is which is which is powered by poetry powered by the, by, the, by the fire of imagination, once it takes root, once it solidifies, uh, very often it becomes or takes upon itself to be the antithesis of, of poetry. And, you know, as an example, you know, I mentioned Bashar, Ibn Burd. Now, you know the story of Bashar, but Bashar used to go to the Hassan circle and attend. And he stayed on uh, or tried to stay on with Bashar's, with Hassan's, uh, the guy who came after him, Wasil who was the head of the Mu'tazilite uh, School of Kalam. But he was chucked out of that circle. He was chucked out. So already, people who were forming the roots of reasoning in Islam, who were, you know, based on... on, He took a position against Bashar because he was... uh, He didn't believe like they did in God, and um, he had specific sexual interests that were not normal in their view. And so he was, you know, was chucked out of the circle. He was chucked out eventually of, of Baghdad. So at one stage, people who are poets uh, in their heart, who are free thinkers, who are free thinkers prepared to stand up and, and say what they believe, who in fact are the source for change in society and even for the uh, development of reason, very often find themselves at the end thrown out by authority once it's established by reason, once it becomes a system. It's a hard life for a poet.
2: Hi. Thank you, first of all, for a wonderfully entertaining lecture and a beautifully written book. Let me just repeat very quickly. Yes, this is very much worth picking up. There are many copies there. I got mine this morning, and I blame you for um, not getting around to writing on Al-Ghazali, which is what I was supposed to do (laughs) this whole day. But it really is. It's an extremely um, attractively written and very valuable narrative. So in a sense, your answer to Otto already co-opted the question that I was originally going to ask, but I'll... Try to get around to a slightly different one. to begin with, to your your major point about there being obviously philosophy or reasoning within the world of Islam um, outside of just the narrow job description of falsafa. Mm. that that's a very obviously correct one, and you illustrate it wonderfully both in the lecture and in the more more generally in the book. Um, it accords nicely with um, something that was put um, forward by Justin Smith in a book just published this year called, the Philosopher, A History in Six Types, which, which, which again tries to expand on our understanding of mm. where philosophy is found in various world cultures. And he says, I think in very much the same terms as what you were saying, trying to reflect back exact your words, anywhere where you go beyond the appearances and ponder how things are put together, that's where reasoning or philosophy happens. And that means anywhere where we have a sort of a distinctive worldview. But I was wondering, here's, here's the question then, the example, wonderful illustration from Al-Ghazali and Ibn Taymiyyah that happened towards the end. One thing that you kind of didn't get around to mentioning, I suppose, is that, of course, in the immediate term, Al-Ghazali won. In that, exactly, Aristotelian logic, no longer identified as Aristotelian, but simply as, you know, as Al-Ghazali himself puts it in the Qistas al-Mustaqim, you know, the Prophet's logic is what we need to use in order to advance our sort of scientific project. And this is what you see in the, certainly in the Kalam manuals going forward for, from Fahreddin al-Razi onwards, so that there's that famous passage, passage in Ibn Khaldun where he says that, yeah, all the theologians, all they're doing now is logic. So one of the things that that sort of um, I'd like to pursue here is that if indeed, as I think is becoming to emerge as the consensus view, later Kalam becomes sort of, it's, it's no longer philosophic because they don't need to call it philosophic, but it certainly is philosophizing. If that becomes sort of normal science in the Kunian sense, then if you're wondering about where would a renewal of a different mode of reasoning um, within Islam come from, what would the resources then, then be? If, if sort of Kalam got, uh, this is what I got from the last part of your book, um, Kalam gets sort of stuck in its Aristotelian ways more or less. So what would some of the alternative resources um,
1: be? Again, I mean, it's a, a fascinating point that you're making. Now, to go to uh, Aristotelian logic in Kalam. Yes, logic in the way that uh, Ghazali describes it, and in, in the way that it's sort of come to be studied in, uh, in schools, universities, you know, around the world, even in Al-Azhar, as I think I mentioned in the... In the uh, in the book I wrote, um, I mentioned in particular the, uh, yeah, I can't remember what I mentioned, but anyway. Uh, but, but, you know, there's a problem with Aristotelian logic. Uh, and it's a problem that Ibn Taymi and people like him, and not just Ibn Taymi and others also, have, have actually uh, pointed out right from the beginning, which is, that, which is the problem that a lot of logicians discovered in Aristotle uh, in Europe later on. I think that uh, it, it's a very kind of uh, it's a dead kind of logic, if you see what I mean. It's it it's sort of it, it doesn't allow you to be imaginative. It doesn't allow you to come up with new with new ideas, and and this is the thing about the kalam at the beginning with analogy, the inference uh, thing, the taulid uh, thing that you you know you're, you're trying to come up with something new, and you're trying to come up with ideas not on the basis of going up or down a ladder, but on, on, on the basis of jumping, coming up with something new. And, and you, you just can't do that syllogistically in the in their and sense. And I think a lot of the logic now that is taught in, in our schools, I mean, for instance, my own university back, back home, you know, if you want to study logic, you, you're just basically studying formulas, and, and, and that's it. And, and you don't really understand anything. In the end, it's a dead tool. So it's actually important, therefore, to look into not just the systems, but also to go into the philosophy of, of the systems. You want to try and establish what it means by such statements as all such and such and such and such. And I think these are things that are still not dealt with in, our, in, our, in the Arab world. What we deal with in the Arab world is simply the straightforward logic that we learned uh, that was studied, that Ghazali, for instance, writes about, and so on. But it's it's really very elementary. Come on, isn't it? I mean, it's it's, it's straightforward. It's uh, no, we don't agree. No, no, no,
2: I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, if you go into actually examining Aristotle's sort of modal syllogistic and so on, it, you know. But again, what does it do for us? Of course, that's the key
1: question you're posing. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly so. the question is how do we? How can we think again? How do you use reason, whether you're looking at syllogisms or anything else? In order to move beyond to ask ourselves the important questions to do with our own life, I mean this is where reasoning began. The Arab world needs that more than anything at the moment, to think again. And, and you, need, you, need a, you need an inspiration to get people to start thinking. Never mind, you know, using what kind of syllogism or absence or absence of, of syllogism? I don't know if I answered you, but, but you made a very good point. Thank you.. <laughs> Well, thank you again for listening and coming to and putting up with everything. Thank you. thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.